Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. From a jail cell about 10 years into the early church movement, a guy named Paul, uh, who previously in his life persecuted and killed Christians as a part of his job and his vocation, sat down in his Roman jail cell to write a letter to the church in Philippi. And if you have a New International Version translation of the Bible with a moderate-sized text, uh, the book of Philippians is about four pages long. And if you look through those four pages, you see the word rejoice nine times. And it's a Greek word called hiero. And it actually appears 74 times over the course of our New Testament. But in the beginning of chapter three, this is what Paul says. And I think it's such a perfect framework for where we are going over the course of today and for the rest of the summer. He says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Rejoicing and delighting and choosing to allow the joy of the Lord to be your own church in Philippi. It is going to, and it can be, and it will be a reliable safeguard for your faith. I think what Paul is trying to get us to see in this is that delight is a function of the spiritual life. If you are wanting to live a spiritual and connected and good and full and free and fruitful life with God, delight is a function of it. It's not passive, it's active. It's something that you and I must choose. It's something that you and I must be incredibly intentional about. And something that I would just love to consider and invite you to, to kind of ponder in your mind is this reality is that faith and delight are actually linked together. And here's what I mean by that. When we delight in something, it becomes something that we put our faith in. If we have our faith in something, it becomes the source of our delight. For example, if you are just like, you just can't wait till Friday afternoon to sit by the beach or sit by the pool so you can experience delight. To an extent, you have faith in what your experience is going to be like sitting by the pool and vice versa. And this is so important for us to understand. Uh, if, I wanna catch you up. If you weren't here over the past couple of weeks, we're talking about delight this summer and this is the way that we're defining it. Mike said this just a couple of weeks ago. Delight is to encounter something good. It's to, it's to interact with something good and allow its goodness to awaken us to what we want. And the reality is if God created life, then he alone gets to define it. You, if you've been around Port City for any length of time, you've heard Mike talk about this because it's so incredibly true. And I believe, and the thing that I want to put in front of you today is that God has a specific way for you and for me to experience delight. And if I could sum it up in four words, this is the way that I would say, I think God's way to delight requires clarity. It requires communion with him. It requires courage and it requires intentionality. But here's what we know. We live in a culture that loves ambiguity more than we do clarity. Why? Because clarity feels limiting. We struggle with clarity oftentimes because we're, we're nervous about its effect. We think about communion with God and it feels unattainable. For those of you that have been walking with Jesus for a good part of your life, you probably kind of can resonate with this, that there have been moments in your life 
We're sitting down and writing in your journal and reading your Bible and practicing prayer as a spiritual practice of your life can feel unattainable. It can feel difficult. It can feel like you're talking and no one is listening. It requires courage, but courage, as we know, it always coexists with fear. It it, it means that we've got to embrace the fear of missing out sometimes to experience delight, to walk in the way of Jesus, the way that you and I were made to walk, it's going to require intentionality, which takes discipline. And discipline has become a bit of a cuss word in our culture today, seemingly. Where it's like, if someone tells us that we've gotta be disciplined, it's like, no, no thanks. But the truth is that God is asking to be clear with you. He's asking to be in communion with you. He's asking for you to choose courage over fear, and he's asking you to live intentionally. If we've never met before, my name is Carson, and I'm so glad to be with you today. I'm really, really hopeful for the message today. If you're in Leland this morning, I'm especially glad that you are with Matt Rabelais and the team today. If you're online, I'm especially glad that you are linked in. I hope wherever you're watching from is comfortable. Uh, And for all of us here in Wilmington, it is so good to see your face this morning and be here in person with you. Uh, Over the past week, I've had a lot of big events in my life. And on this past Tuesday, uh, my daughter Lennon turned a whole year old, which is pretty wild. And this is her delighting in the pool the other day. Uh, celebrating her birthday. In case you can't see, those sunglasses have her name uh, on it, and she's got a full bottle of milk sitting in the pool. You could not bother her at all. She was experiencing, and now she's leading our church for this moment, and what it looks like to delight. But we know delight and faith are linked, so we're gonna pull this apart a little bit today. But here's the, the back end of the story. This picture, yes, it's incredibly cute, and I'm very biased. And it looks like everything's going really well in the pool, right? Well, when that bottle ran out of milk, delight was over, people. She was like, get me out of the pool, get me into my sleep sack, and get me into the crib because I am ready for a nap. But this is you and me. We experience something that we like, hypothetically, a bottle of milk. We experience delight, but we find that it's temporary because we've built our source of delight on unstable ground. I read a study this week uh, of a social survey that's been taking place since 1972 for over 50 years. And for the first 50 years of the study, they asked the question to the people surveyed, how are things going these days? And they gave them three potential responses. One, you would describe yourself as very happy. Two, you would describe yourself as pretty happy. And third, you would describe yourself as not too Happy. And here's what's so interesting. For the first 50 years of the study, they found that 31% of people would say that they are very happy. 57% of people said that they were pretty happy. And 13% of people said they were not very happy. But then in 2021, things began to change. Now, yes, the pandemic was coming kind of to its full head during that time. But I don't think that the pandemic is the only thing to blame for this next part of what happened in 2021. It went from 31% of people saying that they were very happy to 19%. 57% of people saying they were pretty happy stayed the same, but the amount of people that went from saying they were not too happy went from 13 to 24. 
Why is this significant? Because you and I and our culture has become very, very good at pursuing delight the world's way as opposed to God's way. This is the way that I would articulate the world's way of finding delight. One is being young or or acting young. That's why there's a lot of you that are in your 60s and 70s and you feel this tension to just act young all the time. But your body's like, nope. But you feel like the world's saying, you've gotta be young in order to enjoy life. Second, uh, you've got to indulge. You just gotta eat whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want. You just, you, you gotta drink as much as you want. Do as many drugs as makes you feel happy and feel content and feel joyful in this life. This idea of indulgence is crippling to our souls and to our minds. Third is knowledge. That we've got, we have to know something. We've got to be wise. We've got to be considered wise by other people. The, the fourth one I would say is escape. This is why Friday night is so important to a lot of us because we're able to just kind of unplug from the world until Monday morning and escape reality. Let's be honest. That's the role that our TV plays in our house. Power on, disconnect. Now I can delight. And then lastly, success. In case you're curious, that spells yikes. If this is the way that we are to find delight in our life, we all have some troubled days ahead. Why? Because we're, we're not always gonna be young. We're, n- we're not always gonna find fruit in indulgence. We're not, we're not gonna know everything. We can't escape reality to a certain extent. And success is sometimes limited. It's sometimes a challenging thing to come by. But what I would just encourage you with is we don't see this in the creation story. The very beginning of our Bibles in Genesis chapter one, the garden of Eden, or better translated, the garden of delight. These things are not important to God. And therefore they're they're not important to Adam and Eve. What's important to Adam and Eve? The clarity of who God is. Communion with God. Courage to do the call that God put on their life and living intentionally until the day that they took the fork in the road and chose their own way. And I think this kind of introduces this idea that we have all kind of taken the bait on and it's what I'm describing as secondary delight or superficial delight. And this is when we determine, not when God determines, when when we determine what is good and rely on its goodness to satisfy us in the moment for the moment. This is secondary. This is not true delight as we are talking about and as we as Jesus followers and people who are trying to follow God with our everyday ordinary life need to be considering. And this idea of superficial, this idea of, this is is a shallow, shallow, shallow version of delight. And the thing that I just would love to just put in front of you is that we can't offer God. We cannot offer God our true selves or experience true delight when we are steeped in superficiality. We can't do it. But a lot of us try every day because the shallow place is the comfortable place. Think about a pool. The three foot end, you can just stand up whenever you want to. The deep end, you have to tread water. But where do you learn how to swim? You learn in the deep end. 
something that you can't learn in the shallow end. And King Solomon, considered to be the wise man to ever live, wrote this in Ecclesiastes. He says, I denied myself nothing. He was incredibly rich. My eyes desired, I refused my heart, no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. And this was the reward for, for all my toil. Yet, yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and in case you're curious, the handout that you were given on the way in, this is a part of today's message. He surveyed all that his hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve and everything was meaningless. Secondary delight was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. I love you and I want to be your friend, so I want to be honest with you. A lot of us are chasing the wind. When we think about where our joy and our delight and our satisfaction come from, we're chasing the wind because it all culminates on what gives us joy in the moment, for the moment. So the question I would love for you to consider and for me to consider, and I've been considering it all week long in preparing for this moment, is what if our ruthless pursuit of happiness has clouded our view of God and true delight? What if our ruthless pursuit of joy and a good experience, finding contentment and finding success and acting young, what if it's actually clouded our view of who God really is? What if it's mutated and altered our view of what true delight is. And when you look at the Old Testament, you see the story of the people of Israel, and this is something that they got wrong so many times, over and over and over again. I think if you were to sum up the entire Old Testament, you would find that the, the people of Israel were unfaithful and God was still faithful. Every time they chose their own way, God was like, no, I'm staying with you, I'm providing for you, I'm gonna rain down manna from heaven, I'm gonna give you water and a rock, I'm gonna part the sea, I'm gonna do all of these things to show you that I am with you. But here's what's interesting. The people of Israel were always focused on getting God to remain with them, but they were not focused on remaining with God. This is you and me. We want God to come into all of the parts in our life and make our life better but we don't want to spend the time, the energy, the effort to just remain with God. And over the course of the Old Testament, we actually see an, an item called the Ark of the Covenant play a huge role in the way that the people of Israel saw the presence of God being here on earth as he is in heaven. And the Ark of the Covenant contained the, the Ten Commandments and a couple of other items, and it was this prized possession. Well, one day in battle, it was captured by the Philistines, and then it eventually kind of gets brought back because they're like, no, we don't want this thing. And they, they bring it back, they give it back to the people of Israel, and then it be, kind of begins this really long, twisted journey of coming back to the capital of Israel, Jerusalem. And King David becomes king, and one of his first things is he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to the city of Jerusalem. And as it comes back into the city, there's this fascinating thing, this, this kind of long chapter in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, that David instructs the Levites, the people who were in charge of caring for the, the Ark of the Covenant, to do and to say and to, to use as a declaration of worship for who God is. Because David's like, okay, if the Ark of the Covenant, if the visualization of the presence of God is going to come remain with us, 
in Jerusalem, then we must fix our attention. We must fix our heart's affection on remaining with God. And I think what's so interesting about First and Second Chronicles is when you look at it, it was actually designed to be in the very beginning, the very end of the Hebrew Bible. Now it's towards the beginning, but it was, it was written a couple hundred years after the Babylonian exile. And the writer was trying to bring the, the people of Israel's attention back to staying really focused and really reliant on who God is and what God has for them to do. So I would love to just pull apart a couple of things that David instructs the people to use to, to align their heart's attention and affection towards God. In First Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 8, he jumps in and he says, I want you guys to do this. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory. Glory, revel in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face on Friday afternoon. Seek his face always. If you were counting, there's eight verbs in two verses. It's action. Delight is a function of the spiritual life. And it's a critical one at that. A little bit later down in the chapter, he, he really brings a lot of clarity as to who God is. He says this in verse 25. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Uh, a lot of us have a lot of idols. It looks like the superficial places that we experience delight, the shallow, the shallow places. And we've arranged our life in such a way that now our faith is in them. Our faith is in the success of those things. And he goes on to say, splendor and majesty are before him. This is so important. Strength and joy are in his dwelling place. Capture this in your, in your mind. If you tuned out for a minute, I know I'm a little bit boring sometimes, but strength, strength and joy are in his dwelling place. This is critical for us to remember because when we come and we remain with God, we experience a strength and a joy unlike anything else our world has to offer. But as we humans often do, David got distracted. And at the beginning of chapter 17, this is what he, it says. The, the writer of Chronicles says, after David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan replied to David, whatever you have in mind, do it, for God is with you. How many people have gotten that spiritual advice before? Whatever you want. If it makes you happy, it's worth doing. It turned out to not be quite accurate advice. It goes on. But that night, the word of God came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant, David, this is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house from the day that I brought Israel up out of Egypt. Uh, to this day, I have moved from one tent site to another, from one dwelling place to another. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say, did I, God's saying, hey, David, get this right. Did, did I ever say to any of the leaders whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? It's like God is saying, hey, dude, you're focused 
on the wrong thing. I am not worried about a building. I'm worried about your heart. But a lot of us do this. We delight in God when we are here in Leland at the building today, at Belleville today, or we're here at Wilmington at 250 Vision Drive, or when we're logged in to watching online. Those are the places that we dwell in. But God's like, no, don't get so fixated on the place that you miss taking me in the, all the moments in between. And then he brings so much clarity towards the end of this section in verse 10. He says this, I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. It's the other way around, David. I'm gonna build a house for you. You're not gonna build a house for me. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one. He is the one who will build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. I will never take away my love for him uh, as I took away from your, your predecessor who saw, long story there. I will set him up or set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. It's like God through Nathan is saying to David, I need you to see me clearly. You can't afford to get this wrong. When I was in middle school, my biology teacher came to our class one day and said, I think you guys should get certified to go scuba diving. And my middle school brain was like, breathing underwater? Cool. Like, it was like, that, that's interesting. Like, I love the water, and now I'm gonna be under the water, but I'm gonna be breathing all at the same time. Fascinating. So I start going to these classes, and the classes are at night after school, and I, I'll never forget, I was sitting in this, at this table, and I was kind of tired from the day, and I let out this big yawn. Like, it was so obvious, like that guy did a minute ago. Like, I... I was sitting there, I was just kidding, uh, and my instructor stops the class, looks directly at me and says, do you have any feedback for how I can make this presentation better? I was like, oh no, sorry, sir, I, I was just a little bit tired. He goes, oh, well, you were yawning, so I figured you had something to add. You, you, this, is important, this is important material. You're gonna be under the water breathing. You must pay attention. I was like, yeah, 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 it'll be great. My middle school brain was like, it'll be fine. Well, fast forward. To the final dive of the class, we're off the coast of Riceville Beach at the Liberty Ship. I'm in 30, 35 feet of water. I'm swimming around, having a great time. I got my little, got my little mask on, and I'm like swimming around, looking so goofy. You know what I'm saying? Like, you ever think about how goofy scuba divers look? Anyway, I don't know why I'm doing this in front of all you guys, but I'm swimming around, and all of a sudden, my, my, my goggles start fogging up, and I can't see where I'm going. And I forgot the trick of how do you clear your goggles while you're underwater and you can't just get out. Like it takes a long time to get out. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm just swimming the best way that I know how and then all of a sudden I, I feel somebody grab my hand and I look through through my like blurry goggles. This girl who I had a huge crush on through the whole entire class is now holding my hand. It was the first time I had ever held a girl's hand in my life. I was like, cool. Like I, I love scuba diving. This is awesome. I don't need to see through my goggles. She's holding my hand. Like, what could go wrong here? Here's the point. I couldn't see clearly. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't done the work. I hadn't paid close attention. And here's why this is important. How you see determines how you seek. How, how you see something determines how you follow something or how you participate in something. Let's put it in a few real, real life terms. How you see your wife determines how you seek her. 
How you see your husband determines how you seek him. How you see your kids determines how you seek them. Business leaders in the room, how you see your employees determines how you seek them. How you see your past determines how you really kind of begin your new future and how the, the level of hope that you experience in this life. How you see determines how you seek. How you see faith determines how you live within it. And there's a lot of different ideas about faith in our world today. And one is kind of this faux version of faith that it requires perfection and that you have to make all these perfect decisions to be living in faith. And I love one of our pastors, Rick Schaefer, in his book, Companion Planted, that we read together as a church, defines faith as trust that's willing to take a step. What would change about the way that you see faith if it was simply trust that is willing to take a step, to go a step further? How you see God determines how you seek God. How you see God is critical to consider. And in my conversations with people and in my own life, I think there's four big ways that we struggle when we think about the way that we see God. The first is we're convinced that God is an angry God. When we think about delight, we're like, no, God's angry at, at me for X, Y, and Z, so therefore I cannot find delight in him. The second is Amazon God. That God is just gonna deliver us delight in two days. Let's be honest, a week now, but like you, you get the point. We see God through this lens. So when God doesn't deliver the thing that we want on the time frame that we want, then, then God is not trustworthy to be our source of delight. The third way is antagonist God. That he's like always stirring the pot. And if we're to put our full faith and trust in him, he's just gonna wreck our life and take away all the things that we like and take away all the things that we enjoy and replace them with things that he enjoys. We, we have this inaccurate view of God, missing the reality that God made the heavens. That God put you together in a beautiful and intricate way and made you for more than you are experiencing today because there's breath in your lungs, there's hope for tomorrow. And then fourth is annoying God, where he cares about things that we don't care about, so therefore we, we, we can't trust God with that, because that will just be annoying. That will just be difficult. And this is what prevents us from allowing God to determine what is good or what is worthy of our delight. So I have three questions that I'm considering right now and I would love to invite you to consider. The first one is this, is have you given God the authority to determine what is good? Or is that your jurisdiction? And just, just be honest. Have you given God that authority to determine what is good? Second is where are you spending your life? And this ordinarily would be a question that we would articulate in the way of like, where are you spending your time? But the reason that I want to use the word life here is because the way that you spend your time is the way that you're spending your life. You're gonna tell a story about how you used your time here on earth. I dare you to make it a good one. I dare you to get to the end of your life and look back and be able to go, I used my time on earth in the way that God intended for me to use it, which is why on your way in, everyone got one of these cards. And 
Uh, we can put this first graph on the screen, Megan. Uh, and it's, it's just a circle with 24 hours on it. And this is a beautiful exercise. I've done it. I have a one-year-old, so I've done it like every week for the past year because every time I think I got my schedule figured out, it changes. But what I wanna encourage you to do is to take this home and spend some time considering, like, where is your time going? And, and I think in our culture today, the first three things that you've got to consider is how much time are, are you spending asleep? How much time are you spending working? Or if you're retired, what is the other kind of like second biggest thing that you spend your time on? How much time are you looking at a screen? And then what are some other like kind of big areas of your life where your time is going? And begin to consider it. You create a visual for it. Because if I would imagine, once you see where your time is going, you might make some decisions a little bit differently about where you give your time, about where you spend your life. I, I have conversations with people often when, I'm, especially when I'm getting my hair cut, for some reason, they ask me what I do, and I say I work for a church. They're like, what do you do at a church? I'm like, I'm a pastor. I'm like, well, what, what do you do during the week? This is what people think pastors do during the week. This is what I'm convinced. We sleep, we read scripture and prayer, we study Greek and Hebrew, we have some family time, and then we spend some more time in scripture and prayer. This is what I'm convinced people think pastors do. And I brought my real schedule for you because I just wanna be real with you in hopes that you'll just be real with yourself. You don't have to be real with anybody else except for yourself in this. This is, this is what my schedule looks like. I typically go to bed around 11, I try to wake up at 5.30. If you ask my wife, she would say my alarm goes off at five and I wake up at 5.30, tough subject. Uh, then I've found that from 5.30 to 7.30 is kind of this like window of time in my day that is largely unaccounted for. After that, I go home and I, I, I oftentimes go to the coffee shop in the mornings or go to the gym. I know it doesn't look like it, but I, I, I come home and I get my daughter ready and I, getting out of the house with a kid, I don't know how you people with four kids do it. Like it, it, it's, it's something, getting my, my child ready to go and in her car seat and her diaper bag ready. So that takes a little bit of time. And then I spend a lot of time at work and then I come home and I spend a little bit of time with my family and then we clean up from the day. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. It's like you gotta clean bottles and get ready for the next day. And then at the very end of the day, I, I, I don't like admitting this, but I'm, I'm gonna admit it. I spend two hours, sometimes three watching West Wing, best show on TV. Like, uh, I'll argue with you later. Like, uh, I, I spend time escaping. I spend time just indulging, watching a TV. And when I did this exercise for the first time, my time looking at a screen was a lot bigger. But the visualization that there was a big chunk of my day going to looking at a screen convicted me to think about, I'm gonna tell a story about my life, I don't, I don't want to tell the story of superficial secondary delight. I wanna tell the story where I pursued true delight in the Lord and I trusted that his ways are higher and better than my ways. We actually have colored pencils for one per family before you leave today on your way out. You can grab a colored pencil pack and you can do this exercise and then you can call me and talk to me about it because I would just encourage you to do it because I think it'll be really really telling. And then the third question is this, is in light of where your time is going, what is your faith really in? Because where we spend our time is really indicative of what our faith is in, of what we're trusting to be our source of delight. 
And Mark chapter five, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is recorded among a bunch of different healings that Jesus does. Three out of his 37 miracles are in Mark chapter five. And uh, Jesus comes into this town uh, where the Gerasenes live and he's walking in and he heals this man on his way in, but then uh, he encounters a synagogue leader and the synagogue leader comes and falls at his feet and says, Jesus, will you, will you heal my daughter? My daughter is very, very sick. Will, will you come and heal her? And Jesus went with him according to Mark. And then as he's moving, this big crowd of people comes crowding around Jesus because they wanna see what happens next. They're, they're anxious to see, is, is this Jesus guy really who he says that he is? And as they're going to Jairus' house, this woman comes up and fights her way through the crowd. If you know the story, she had been bleeding for 12 years. And Mark articulates that she had suffered underneath the care of many doctors and had given all of her money to try to find a healing. But it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. She was suffering for an incredibly long time. A lot of you, and in moments in my life, I find myself suffering from a deficiency of delight because I have built my life on unstable ground because my ruthless pursuit of my own happiness has clouded my view of God. Consider the woman's perspective. Jesus was moving this big crowd to do this really cool, unimaginable thing. She wasn't caught up in the hype. She wasn't caught up in the movement of culture. She saw Jesus and she said, I just got to get to him. Her view of Jesus was that strength and joy are found in his dwelling place. She knew, she thought, she believed with everything that she had, all I've gotta do is to touch his outer garment. She does, she's healed because she put her faith where it was always intended to be, the garden of delight, clarity of who God is, and communion with Him. The way that we see God, the way that we see God determines our ability to experience true and lasting delight. In Matthew chapter five is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus pulls a bunch of people together that are actually sick and hurting and kind of considered outcasts of the culture of that day. And he says the Beatitudes, if you grew up in church, you've heard about them. And one of them is blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. When we choose to just be honest with ourselves, we get to see who God really is. And our culture doesn't really allow us to slow down very often. So for the next 30 seconds to a minute, I'd really love in the quiet of your own heart and in your mind to consider the question, how do you see God?